of. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander, that's Claudius Lysias, ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. The commander directed that Paul be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As the soldiers stretched Paul out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander, Claudius, went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen. Paul replied, Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he'd put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, so the next day he released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So let me paint the picture. So this guy Claudius is the leader of this group of a 1,000 troops, but he also at this point is the highest-ranking official in Jerusalem, Roman official, so he's responsible for keeping the peace. That's his primary job, and he gets in trouble if there's an uproar, which there is. There's a riot in the temple, and so his primary responsibility is to figure out who's causing trouble and how do I end it. And so he's got Paul, and he quickest way for him from A to B is to torture Paul to figure out what's going on. So he's going to flog Paul, and he's going to, it's called scourging. It's with one of these instruments. It's Jesus was whipped with this right before his crucifixion. So you've got wooden handle, leather lashes with bone or uh, metal at the end, and many people wouldn't live through it. Paul's been beaten with rods by Romans, and he's been uh, whipped by Jews. He's never experienced this. And again, it's, it's brutal. A lot of the prisoners wouldn't even live through it. And so Paul says, is it legal for y'all to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? He knows the answer is no. And so the centurion says, it's no, no, because if the centurion does that to Paul, then Paul's a Roman citizen, then the centurion gets in a lot of trouble. So the centurion goes to his boss, Claudius, and says, hey, this guy says he's a Roman citizen. Claudius goes to confirm, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. Paul is bloodied and beaten. And I think with some sarcasm, Claudius says, well, I guess citizenship is not what it used to be. I had to pay a lot of money for mine. And if they're letting people like you become citizens now, then maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And Paul says, I didn't pay anything for mine. I was born a citizen. And so that shifts dynamics between Paul and the soldiers. And you'll notice as we read through, the dynamics do shift. And now for Claudius, his responsibility is not just to keep the peace. It's also to protect Paul. As a Roman citizen, he has some rights and some privileges. And so Claudius' responsibility is to protect him and to make sure he gets a trial for whatever it is that's going wrong. And so, again, Claudius is going, I'm not sure what to do. So you're a Jew. This seems to be some kind of internal squabble among your people. So let's go to the Sanhedrin. That's a group of 70 men who were the leaders of the, the, leaders of the temple. And let's, let's figure out. I'm going to take you there, and it's a Jewish issue, so hopefully that group can help us figure out what exactly is going on. Uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I, full, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That was an insult in those days. A burn. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest. For it's written, don't speak evil about the ruler of your people. Maybe some sarcasm there from Paul as well. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So Claudius ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from this group, from the Sanhedrin by force, and bring Paul into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So, uh, Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin, and he says, My conscience is clear. I feel good about what I've done. Ananias is a terrible person. Uh, he was... Uh, he took bribes. He was corrupt. Uh, people, the, there were offerings that were brought to the temple, animals that were sacrificed, and grain. And all of that was supposed to go to the Levites. That's how the Levites made a living. That's how they were fed. And Ananias took it for himself. He was so bad, he was killed by his own people in 66 AD. He's a, well, just a terrible person. But he is the high priest. And so when Paul says, I feel good about what I've done, I feel good about saying God sent me to the Gentiles. I feel good about my mission to them. Ananias is going, what does, that, what does that mean for us who disagree with you? And so he orders Paul to be slapped, and Paul replies by calling him a hypocrite. You're like a wall that's rotten on the outside that people give a fresh coat of paint so you can't tell that it's rotten. That's, that's what you are, Ananias. And then people say, Paul, you can't speak about the high priest that way. And Paul says, I didn't know he's a high priest. Maybe because, again, sarcasm, the high priest wouldn't command an unlawful action, me to be slapped when I haven't even been found guilty of anything. Could be that Paul uh, d- doesn't know. He hasn't been in Jerusalem for about 10 years, so maybe he doesn't recognize Ananias. Uh, I think Paul doesn't have good eyesight. I think that was his thorn in the flesh. He couldn't see very well. Um, there, he has other people write his letters for him, and there are times where he signs his letters, and he says, I'm doing this with a large hand. It's almost like he can't see that great. And so I'm wondering if he just couldn't see across the room. That's my opinion doesn't necessarily matter, but Paul backpedals and said, well, I'm going to respect the office, if not the man. You're not supposed to speak ill of those God has put in charge. And then Paul rolls this hand grenade out into the middle of this assembly. So the Sanhedrin is made up of predominantly Sadducees and then minority Pharisees, two different religious parties. And they have significant differences politically and theologically. Luke mentions a couple. The Sadducees only hold that the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are authoritative. And so that's all they use. Pharisees use the whole Old Testament. And Sadducees say, we don't see resurrection from the dead in those first five books. Therefore, we don't believe in it. And the Pharisees do. Paul is a Pharisee. And so you can kind of see a little bit of party loyalty there. Paul, is, a, is again, throws his hand grenade out. The Pharisees are saying, hey, he's, he's one of us. 
He's on our team and, and we could see some of these things. You know, if it is for the resurrection of the dead, well, we believe that. Because what Paul is saying is, is I believe in the resurrection of the dead and that Jesus was the first one to be raised. And the Pharisees, it's a shorter step for them than the Sadducees. And they're saying, okay, maybe we can see that. Pharisees do believe in angels. And, and so maybe this voice Paul heard from heaven on the Damascus Road, maybe it was an angel. That's an easier step for them. And so Paul's basically created chaos in this Sanhedrin. And those kind of the picture for me is like one of those old cartoons where you got someone in the middle and people are pulling their arms in opposite directions. That's a picture to me of what's happening to Paul. And so Claudius, again, he's got to keep the peace and even more important for him now is he's got to protect Paul. Paul is his responsibility as a Roman citizen. So he steps in and removes Paul from the situation. Verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander, that's Claudius, to bring Paul before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him. Before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister, so that's Paul's nephew, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to, to Claudius. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Claudius took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Paul's nephew said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for Paul. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul, and they're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. Claudius dismissed the young man with this warning, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then Claudius called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So that's 470 men to go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Claudius wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, that's the one who wrote it, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I'd learned that he's a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with charge, questions about their law, but there were no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris, that's 35 miles away. The next day they let the cavalry go back, or go on with Paul while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from, learning he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace, and we'll look at that trial next week. So you got the picture there. We got over 40 Jews who make an oath, something like, cursed be us if we don't kill Paul. There's a big asterisk at the end of that um, oath. 
If something happens outside of the control of these guys, then they're released from the oath. So they didn't starve to death. Um, because Paul was moved by the by Lysias, by Claudius, that, that allowed them to be uh, re- released from that oath. So that's the, they, there's this plot to assassinate. Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, he's not, he's not in the dungeon. He's in those barracks that we looked at on the first slide. He's got a decent amount uh, of freedom in terms of people having access to him. His nephew hears of the plot. He comes to Paul. You see the way the dynamics have changed. Paul is a prisoner, and he's telling his guards what to do, and they're, they're obeying him. Again, because he's a Roman citizen, lots of status there. So he's able to say to these soldiers, hey, this is, I, I want you to take my nephew to your boss and have him tell the plot. And so they, they do. And Claudius takes it seriously. So seriously, he probably has a 1,000 troops in Jerusalem, and he takes 470 of them just to deliver Paul. And so these guys were, were serious. There's over 40 of them. Roman soldiers are armed. They're not necessarily nice. And if they're protecting a prisoner and the prisoner escapes or something happens to the prisoner, they're responsible for that. So if these guys are going to attack this group moving Paul from the barracks back to the Sanhedrin, some of them are going to die. It's a, it's a suicide mission for some of them. That's how zealous, that's how serious they are about seeing Paul dead, that they're willing, at least some of them, to sacrifice their own lives for that. Claudius takes it seriously, and at night he has his guys, and if you can imagine, at 9 o'clock at night, marching 35 miles. That's how seriously he takes this threat. And so they hightail it out of town with this massive military contingent. When they get to Antipatris, again, which is 35 miles away, the foot soldiers go back, to Jerusalem, they're not needed anymore. They're far enough outside of town that the um, conspirators can't get to Paul. The cavalry takes him on to Felix, and then we'll again see the trial the next day. So for Claudius, I think what you see is he's just kicked the problem upstairs. He's just he's referred Paul to his boss and said, "This is bigger than me. There's this guy's causing trouble. I can't figure out why he's causing trouble. I went to their." Sanhedrin, and I couldn't get anything out of them. Now there's this plot to kill him. Claudius doesn't want the responsibility of trying to continue to keep Paul safe. And I think he's feeling like, I don't, I'm kind of at the end of my rope in terms of what I can do to determine what exactly is going on. The things that I've heard are not things that you would kill somebody for. They're, they're, they, the, the charges that I've heard don't rise to the level of the response that I'm seeing from the Jewish people. So he kicks it to his boss. Uh, who's Felix, and we'll look at that again next week. So as I was reading that, it's great, obviously very Paul-centric. What is there in there for us? And I was thinking and struck pretty quickly by the, the, the faithfulness of God. So three days after Paul becomes a Christian, this is what God says to him through a prophet named Ananias. Go, Ananias, this man, that's Paul, is my chosen instrument, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You don't need to know the cities on the map. I knew that was small. But I wanted you to see how many cities Paul visited in 10 years as a missionary. Dozens of cities that he visited. So three days after he becomes a Christian, he's given this assignment in our language. It's his deal. It's to, it's to go to Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel and to proclaim the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And we see over the last over 10 years of Paul's life, from Acts chapter 9 all the way up to 
what we looked at today, Paul, he does that. In every city he goes to, he preaches in the synagogues. He's preaching to the Jews. Inevitably, he gets run out of the synagogue, and he begins to preach in the market to the Gentiles. God has been faithful. And what we're going to see over the next few chapters is that to the kings. Paul is going to preach to the kings of the Gentiles. He's going to preach to a governor. And he's going to preach to the governor's boss. And then he's going to preach to the governor's boss's boss. He just moves up the food chain. And he winds up, God fulfills that word that he gave to Paul three days after he became a Christian. To me, it really speaks to the majesty and the sovereignty of God. I don't, we talked a couple of weeks ago, I don't believe sovereignty means meticulous control. Sovereignty is God's commitment to accomplish his will. And what he said is, Paul, this is what you're going to do. And you see God holding up his end of the bargain. He is faithful to Paul. In this one section that we looked at, three different times, Paul is rescued from death. He's in the temple courts, and they want to stone him. And this commander sees from the barracks and comes down and rescues Paul instead of just letting the Jews kind of uh, carry out their own justice. With the Sanhedrin, Paul's about to get ripped apart. This commander steps in and saves him. There's this plot to assassinate Paul. The commander goes to pretty, pretty extreme measures, sending about half of his army in the middle of the night on a long march to get Paul to safety. We see God's faithfulness to Paul. He's preserving Paul. He's fulfilling this word to Paul, even though it's not necessarily probably how Paul envisioned it when he got that, that word. When he heard that calling, you're going to preach to kings. He probably wasn't thinking he was going to do it with chains around his wrist. But God is faithful to him. The immediate instrument of God's faithfulness is this commander, Lysias, who's not a Christian. There's, there's no sense that there's no indication in the Bible that he has any connection to the Lord at all. God can use anyone. But what I want us to look at is actually the, what I would say is the more fundamental um, instrument that God uses. The, the, the thing that uh, I, I would say is, is more vital to Paul being rescued. And it's two things that Paul was given as a child, it's two things that he was given in his family, two things from his uh, childhood that God used to rescue him in this chapter. One was his training as a Pharisee, and the other was his citizenship, uh, his Roman citizenship. So training as a Pharisee, Paul's parents said, we'll just call it Pharisee school. I don't know if that's what it was called. Paul was sent to Pharisee school, and his parents paid for that, and he trained under Gamaliel, who was the top-notch teacher of his day, and Paul apparently was a very good student, and him as a Pharisee, you see in the Sanhedrin how that comes in handy for him. There's a connection between him and some of those guys. I don't know if you noticed when we were reading it, but it says some of the Pharisees began to speak vigorously. They had gone from saying, hey, this guy is a heretic and a blasphemer to defending him just because he said, I'm a Pharisee like y'all, and I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. His training gave him relationship with those guys, and his training allowed him to see the fault line between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He was very shrewd in what he did. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made that statement. He knew it was a sham trial. If you read what the, Paul's treatment here, it looks almost exactly like the way the Jewish leadership treated Jesus. And you can see based on the fact that these same leaders agreed to go in cahoots with these guys who wanted to assassinate Paul, they weren't interested in finding out the truth. They were interested in killing him. That's what they wanted to do. And so Paul, again, very shrewdly, 
knows these guys disagree with these guys about these theological points. And so he brings them up and then watches them fight with each other. Again, it's very strategic on Paul's part, his training as a Pharisee, something he was given as a young man is what enabled him to do that. Peter doesn't get to do that. James doesn't get to do that. John doesn't get to do that. They're not Pharisees. They don't have standing with anybody in the room. They were never colleagues with anyone in the room, if Paul was. They at least knew Paul by reputation, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. It's not true of any of the other 12 disciples. Those guys were not necessarily schooled religiously the way Paul was. They may not have even known the differences between these two ruling parties. Something very unique that uh, Paul was given by his family that comes in handy for him, that God uses to rescue him later in life. Roman citizenship. Paul says, I was born a citizen, which means his dad was a citizen. Citizenship was passed through the males of a family. Unusual for a Jew to be a Roman citizen. Not a lot of love loss between Jews and Romans, between Jews and Gentiles. I would think highly unusual for a Pharisee to be a Roman citizen. So that these two parties, the Sadducees were pro-Roman. They were elitists. Pharisees were the party of the people. The people didn't like the Roman government because they were oppressed by the Roman government. They were heavily taxed and they felt like the Roman government was oppressive. It was an enemy of God and, and God was going to overthrow it. They were waiting on the Messiah to come to overthrow the government. So unusual for someone who's a Pharisee who's in that world to be a Roman citizen. I don't know this, so this is me speculating but I do wonder if that caused tension for Paul in Pharisee school. I'm wondering if he was one of the only ones. He had to sit at the other lunch table. I don't know. When you think of, when you look at the way Paul talks about his Jewishness, it can read like someone trying a bit too hard. Like someone who has a bit of a chip on their shoulder. I was a Hebrew circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, in terms of being following the law, I was faultless. That's a strong statement zeal, persecuting the church. It seems a bit like he's waving a flag saying, hey, I'm really one of you guys. I wonder if he caught flack for being a Roman citizen as he's also a Pharisee. People are going, why would you associate with them at all? They're the enemy. They're pagan. They're oppressing us. Why, why would you choose to, to have any level of connection with them? Are you really one of us? I don't know that. I just wonder that, if that created tension for Paul growing up. And maybe, you know, this is towards the end of, of Acts. We don't see a lot of Paul um, after this. Paul, up, at least in the last 10 years, he hadn't told anybody he's a Roman citizen. It definitely didn't seem to be something that he flaunted. I don't know if he was ashamed of it, but he definitely didn't seem to be overly proud of it. He, he didn't use it in any of these other cities that he went to, any of the other times he was arrested, any other time he had... Problems. He never seemed to play the citizenship card. So I do wonder if it was a bit of an albatross for him and something that caused tension in his life. And again, God uses even that to deliver him. If Paul is not a Roman citizen, then he gets beat with that whip. Maybe he survives, maybe he doesn't. If he survives, he's thrown in the dungeon. He's not given any privileges. Claudius, at that point, his primary concern is just keeping the peace. And we saw with Jesus, if keeping the peace means sacrificing a guy, then so be it. We'll do that. So Paul's life's not worth a whole lot in that setting. Again, if it's Peter, if it's James, if it's John, if it's 
if it's Nathaniel, if it's Bartholomew, they don't get any of those privileges. They're not Roman citizens. They get whipped, maybe to death. If not, they're thrown in a dungeon. The nephew doesn't have access to them. Even if they hear about the plot, the soldiers aren't going to respond in terms of doing what they ask. The commander's not going to send half of his troops to rescue you because he doesn't care. All he cares about is keeping the peace. You become secondary at that point. Paul's citizenship saved him. Two things he was given and from his family. Two things he was given in his childhood. Training as a Pharisee and citizenship. I've been reading uh, in the Old Testament. This verse has been bouncing around in my head for a couple of weeks. So this is God describing himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations. So that's a key phrase for us. We're thinking about family, what you receive as a child. So God is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Here's another statement for us. God punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So thinking about what we've received, everyone in here is a child. Whether your parents are alive or dead, no matter how old you are, every one of you is a child. And some of you are parents. And so I'm going to speak to everyone as a child, and then to those of you who are parents, I'm going to speak to you a little bit towards the end. We've all received things from our parents. We've all received things from our grandparents. If you do Ancestry.com and you track your tree, you've, things have been passed down to you. And many of those things are good, and, and you've enjoyed the blessings of those things without even being able to name them whether that's a commitment to marriage or a commitment to Jesus or a value of education or somebody just having money or whatever those things. There have been good things, and you've benefited from those good things that have been given to you. And there also have been some things that are not good that have been given to you, and those things have negatively affected you. Again, no matter how old you are, that's just reality. And we, we read that. I'm going to look a little bit at the negative first. We read that and it doesn't sound fair. How, why would God punish a child for something his or her parents did? And God doesn't punish. I want you to hear, God's not holding children responsible for the actions of their parents. You see that in these verses. Parents aren't to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. A great chapter on this is Ezekiel 18, 1 to 20. You can read and there's a, it kind of gets into all the different combinations of parents and children and who sins and who's righteous. But this is the bottom line. The one who sins is the one who will die. We're all responsible for our own heart. So I don't want you to hear from that passage in Exodus that God holds children responsible for their parents' sins. But the reality of relationship, even with the mercy and grace of God, we see Love for thousands of generations. So we see these good things that are passed on multiplying out. Even as mercy and grace, he limits consequences to three or four generations. But they're real because relationships are powerful. And we're raised in family systems. And sometimes the sins of the father become the sins of the children. Sometimes the sins of the parents become the sins of the children. You see that in, in Genesis. Abraham's a liar. Two times he says that his wife is his sister, which is cowardly and untrue. His son, Isaac, then does the same thing with his wife. 
His grandson, Jacob, lies every time he opens his mouth. It runs in the family. Jacob and Isaac are 100% responsible for their decisions. They can't blame Abraham. But when you're raised in a house where dad lies, then lying becomes acceptable. It becomes normative. When the chips are down, dad lied, so I am too. I guess that's okay. The sins of the father passed down become the sins of the children. In some instances, it's easy to see this with alcoholism because it's been studied so much. Children are alcoholics four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves than children who are raised in homes where there's not an alcoholic. And you can think about that with any sinful behavior or attitude. Some of you are worriers. If you look up, do you see that in any previous generation? Some of you have a hard time controlling your temper. Do any of you see that as you look up at previous generations? It doesn't excuse your behavior. But sometimes the sins of our parents or our grandparents become our sins as well. Even if they don't, we, we, because of a family system, we experience the consequences of the sins of our parents. Again, alcoholism is an easy one to pick on because there's been so much research. Children of alcoholics, more prone to depression, more prone to anxiety, more prone to social and relational issues than children whose parents are not alcoholic. So I've been speaking about the codependency and, and all of those dynamics. All that stuff is that's science. Again, you can see that with any sin. It's just easy to pick on alcoholism because it has been researched so much. The consequences of the sins of our family sometimes we experience as well. So God doesn't hold me responsible for what my parents or my grandparents did. But what my parents or my grandparents did does affect me. I may take that sin on myself. Or just the consequences of living in a home where those sins are prevalent can wind up affecting me. So it's not about blaming your parents. It's not about being a victim in Christ. We're a new creation. Old is gone. The new has come. Many of these things get taken care of the moment you say yes to Jesus. Some linger, and they can be dealt with very quickly and very decisively. And so I want you to look up. As wonderful as they are, they're not perfect. Do you see things in them that are manifesting in your own life, and you don't like it? Anger. Do you see worry? Is it something with a substance? Are there things that you see? If there are, you can cut those things off. Jesus, I recognize this in my life, this, and I want to break this pattern of anger in my family. And I'm asking by the, in the power of your spirit, cut it off. It ends now. That's it. You don't have to. Some of you may need to go to counseling. Most of you don't. It's a prayer that you pray. It's a spiritual um, pattern that you're breaking. Again, it's not blaming. You're not a victim, but it's a recognition that sometimes we receive those things from our family that are not helpful. And all of us as, a, as adult children, we have that. We all have good things that we've received, and we want to bless the Lord for those good things. But we also want to recognize the bad things and say, let it stop with me. Now, to those of you who are parents, let me just say this. As you look down towards your children, I want to speak specifically about positives. You're going to give your kids some great things. But most fundamentally, what you want to give them is the, the security, the confidence that you love them. And sometimes, for whatever reason, we miss each other. It's not that we don't love our children, but for whatever reason, sometimes it doesn't get communicated very well. Y'all probably heard of this thing. 
five love languages. Those of you who are married, you maybe have done this. So this guy, he's a psychologist, I think. He came up with these five ways people express love. Acts of service, physical touch, receiving gifts, quality time, and words of affirmation. They're all self-explanatory. And so all newlyweds, we say, you need to figure out your love language and the love language of your spouse. So for me, my number one is quality time. I just want to hang out with people without a big agenda. Shockingly, physical touch is the last one for me. I'm sure you're surprised by that. And so that's my natural language is quality time. If Mary Margaret's my wife, if her number one is different, I tend, people tend to give what they want to receive. I know Spanish. And so that's what I'm going to speak to her. Quality time. But if that's not hers, if let's say her number one is acts of service. So I'm saying let's hang out and she's saying cut the grass. We're missing each other. I'm one, I'm saying this is how I love you. And she's saying no. That's how you want me to love you. The way you love me is you do some work. Help. It does, it's not that I don't love her, it's that she's not, she can't hear. She's speaking French and I'm speaking Spanish. Does that make sense? I went to a counselor about a month ago. I mentioned before my dad died in December and I wanted to make sure I was tracking. Again, shockingly, I didn't have a wave of emotion after that happened. And I wanted to make sure I was okay. So I went to go see this counselor and we were talking and he said in psychology, there's this term called a parent-child fit. And every one of you, again, this, uh, can, can think about this with your own parents. And me and my dad were a fit. I'm a quality time guy. And when I think about the relationship I have with my dad, we played catch in the backyard. He came to my soccer games. We played war, which is the worst card game ever. It never ends. But he played with me regularly. It's just hanging out. And so I never questioned whether he loved me, even though we didn't hug and kiss and say I love you and all those kinds of things. I never questioned that he loved me because what I wanted, time, is what he naturally gave. We were fit. Does that make sense? So... You can go on that five love languages and you can take the test and you can have your children take it. I have four children. These are two anonymous children of mine. And they've taken this and you can see how I line up with two of them. So one of them, if you look, we're exactly the same. So that child, theoretically, whether that child likes me or not, will probably never question whether I love him or her. Because what I'm speaking is what that child wants to hear. Does that make sense? We're speaking the same language. Not hard for me and not hard for that child. The other one, of my, one of my other ones, you can see what I give or what I speak is not necessarily that high on his or her list. Some things that are lower for me are higher for him or her. And so my responsibility as the parent is to adjust. I don't need to ask my kid to learn Spanish. I need to learn French. I'm the adult. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that I love child number one more than child number two. What it means is the way I express love connects more easily with child number one than child number two. And so if I want child number two to have that same foundation as child number one, if what I'm giving to him or her is I love you, then I need to do a little bit. I need to do a little bit more work. I don't want you to hear that as a negative. I've just got to learn a different language, something that doesn't come naturally necessarily to me. And that's my responsibility as a parent to do that. I don't want to make my kids adjust to me. I want to adjust to my kids. Does that make sense? So, again, that has nothing to do with how much you love your children. 
It has to do with whether the fact that you love your children is being communicated to your children in a way that they can understand. What you don't want is for your kids to miss how much you love them just because they didn't know Spanish. Like, that's silly. And as for some of you, as adult children, if you're looking up at your parents, maybe that helps a little bit, even if your parents are dead. Assuming your parents actually did love you, and most parents do love their children, assuming that's true, if you're thinking about how maybe you've missed your mom or you've missed your dad in terms of communicating, maybe this helps a little bit. Maybe they truly did love you. They just didn't know how to communicate it in a way that spoke to you. And what I would say to you as adult children is adjust to your parents. Parents adjust to your children. Adult children adjust to your parents. That's what we do. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we make those adjustments. We take responsibility for our own heart. We don't ask other people to change, particularly if your parents weren't Christians or are not Christians. To ask them to change may be a bit too much. And so maybe you can begin to adjust. I was talking to someone today, and the primary way her dad expresses love to her is by buying her things. It's not her language, but it's what he does. And so the mature response from her is to say, I recognize this is my dad loving me. This is what it is. It's not necessarily my language, but it's his, and so I'm going re- to receive it as such. Does that make sense? That's mature. And so for all of us, that's where we want to get as Children, adult children, what is, how are my parents loving me or how did they and can I receive that from them? That's a gift that we all need from our parents. And then for those of you who are parents, as you think about your children, are you giving that you love them? If you don't, you need to come see me, but you love them. And so you want to make sure that they get it. And that's just, a, this, it's a tool. It may not help you at all. That may not be the issue in your relationship with your kids, but it may spark a conversation or may give you some ideas on ways to communicate that may connect to their heart uh, a bit more than what you're currently doing. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. It's 6.30, so in keeping with 9 and 11, I've run long again, three for three today, but I don't want you to miss the opportunity for prayer. It's a big deal. So if you're an adult child, and all of you are, if you're looking and saying, there's some things that have been given to me, and I don't like them, would you please let us pray for you? We're not going to hear you as trashing your parents. We don't hear you being a victim. We don't hear you blaming. We hear you acknowledging, this is a pattern, and I can see it generationally, and I want it to stop. We're not gonna, there's no counseling up here. There's just prayer. So please let us pray with you about that. Second group, if you're a parent and you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm missing one of mine, we're not connecting. I love them, but for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be what they're getting from me. Would you let us pray for you? It may have nothing to do with these love languages, but it might. We want to pray for you. I think I didn't say this, that the kids can go on that website and take the test. There's a test for 9 to 12 and for teenagers. So if you have kids in that range, they can take it. Five to eight-year-olds, you can, you can get a book. It'll walk you through if that's a tool that's helpful. But what we want to do tonight is pray that God would help you express love to your children in a way that they would understand. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, and I pray that you'd work quickly. We've run over. And so, God, I pray in the next two or three minutes that you would speak, that you would work, that you would set people free from damaging uh, generational patterns and that those parents in the room 
God, that you would give us grace to speak and to communicate love to our kids in a way that they would understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll have some ministry teams here up in the front, and we'll encourage you all to come on. Don't, don't wait.